Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the simplest, most powerful website creator that helps you make headlines with your own stunning online presence. Explore elegant templates, Getty image integration, and more at squarespace.com and use the code Guardian to get 10% off. How do you choose books for review and what happens to the ones that fall by the wayside? These are questions I'm always being asked and I have to confess that with some 400 of them pouring into the office every week, selection can be an imperfect art. Some perfectly decent books miss out on reviews altogether, but just occasionally there's a happy sequel to the story when they get picked up for one of the big literary prizes. We'll be looking at two of those this week. By coincidence, both touch on the horrors of recent African history. Lara Pawson's In the Name of the People is a history of a forgotten massacre in the troubled southern African country of Angola. It passed unnoticed in the UK, barring a couple of academic blogs, until it was picked up for the long list of the Orwell Prize. We'll be talking to Lara later. But first, Gemma Wayne's After Before is one of two first novels to make surprise appearances on the long list for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction. Both are from the same small publisher. With me in the studio is Tom Chalmers, the founder and director of that publisher, Legend Press. And down the line from Israel, we have Gemma. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Claire. Gemma, tell us about this novel. It's the story of three women who improbably meet up in some ways. Yeah, that's right. It's three women, one a young Rwandan refugee. Um, There's the second is a 59 year old woman suffering with a terminal cancer. And the third is a young, newly engaged Londoner who's trying to escape her wild youth by coming to a Christian faith. And what links them is that they've all experienced a very deep betrayal in their pasts, a dark betrayal that they're consumed by. Uh, So at the point that the novel begins, all three of them are stuck. They're trying to fight their demons alone until, of course, their lives intersect. And it's what really becomes an exploration of identity and in particular modern womanhood the relationships between them force that confrontation with the past that all three so need. It's a very big thing to put in the backstory of a novel set in contemporary London, isn't it? The Rwandan genocide. Yeah, I've been asked why did I decide to explore such a a dark topic as genocide And, and really it was quite an accidental thing. It began by coming into contact with a survivor, listening to her speak at a fundraising event and what struck me that night was, and of course, it's impossible not to be moved by the horror and tragedy of what happened. And this month is the, is the 21st anniversary of the genocide, so I'm reminded of that very acutely. But that night, what really got me was this lingering sense of betrayal that the survivor still seemed to find so enduring, this lingering disbelief that in a community that had once been so integrated, so little to differentiate people, still neighbour could betray neighbour, friend betrayed friend. 
Um, and that, that was the notion that stuck with me, this idea of betrayal, how it can be all-consuming, how it can stop you moving on, stop you living. And that's where I got thinking about other characters, other kinds of betrayal, small things like um, unkept promises, unfulfilled dreams. And it's at that point that it then began to grow into these other characters, into what really is a tripartite story. And London kind of felt like the right place for these very different backgrounds to collide. Mm-hmm. You're a white woman writing about a sort of hideous catastrophe for black people in Africa. It's quite yeah. presumptuous. You, I mean, people might say it's quite presumptuous of you to take that on. Yeah, I understand that feeling. But I think that as a writer, being not Rwandan is only one thing that I'm not. I'm also not dying of cancer. I haven't taken drugs. I haven't done a plethora of things that my characters do. I think if we're limited only to what we experience ourselves, then there's very little scope indeed. But I was very aware of the fact that in some ways this isn't my story to tell. And I wanted to make it as authentic as I possibly could. So I did conduct a vast amount of research into this element of the story. And I was very lucky that survivors who were there shared with me their stories, their insights. And I hope I've been able to put across on the page some of that. I think that in the news stories, with all the vast statistics of tragedy, sometimes those personal stories get lost. So I hope maybe in some way I'm able to bring that forward in the novel. It's the story of three women. And I wondered whether you felt that it was partly because it's a story of three women that it didn't get the attention that it might have got from the reviewing community. I don't know. I actually hadn't thought about that aspect. The, the reaction that has surprised me most, I wasn't aware when I was writing it that by dealing with issues of religion had the potential to kind of be that box office poison um, in that, though that I have heard from some people that they didn't like um, those kind of references. But what actually attracted me to exploring that side of things was that I think that at moments of crisis, which these three women are faced with, a lot of us either turn towards religion or away from it. And I find it fascinating to explore the reasons why people do that. And I think a lot of other readers have been attracted by that universality. I have to say at this point that actually that one of the characters, Vera, is a sort of, one might say, a religious nutcase if one were of the Richard Dawkins tendency. Yeah. But with a backstory. Yes. So, so, I mean, it's a sort of particular sort of Christianity you're talking about. Uh, yeah, she's, I guess she's evangelical. She's, she becomes a born again Christian. And it was the, it was, I guess it was the active process of that, that was interesting to me for her character. It, it's not about what you're born, it's about what you're choosing to become. And, and she, she's very much searching for this, a, a way to regain a feeling of goodness. And this is the path she chooses to explore that. But, but within the book, I mean, first of all, to point out that I'm Jewish. So again, this is another thing, you know, I'm not a an evangelical Christian. Um, but also, I, I personally feel that religion can crush and betray as much as it can comfort and liberate. And that was a tension that was important to me to explore. Mm-hmm. Tom, can I bring you in now? Tell me how you picked this novel up, why it fell into your lap, or did it fall into your lap? Well, I mean, much of the credit must go to our commission editor, um, Lauren, who uh, discovered it. But I mean, being completely honest, which I haven't said to Gemma before, that you know, if you hear of the story in the in the first instance of, you know, three different characters who are quite different characters and interweaving, 
you know, it kind of often ticks a box of the kind of kitchen sink book where people throw everything into it and it didn't necessarily jump out. But Lauren pointed out it's something you have to read because, you know, it's a beautiful story. It touches along, you know, lots of issues. It's, you know, intelligence and so on. So she championed it, which is where these prizes come in, which are fantastic, of actually highlighting things. And you say about decisions with reviews and so on in that, you know, it's a book that has to be read in terms of, you know, the quality of the writing. And as soon as you start it and get into it, you realise, you know, the strength of the characterizations, these three different characters who you wouldn't necessarily normally put together and how they you know, interweave with each other and all it's got to say. And I guess that's where also where independent publishers come in. Large publishers have a slightly different process, though advantages of choosing stuff where we, you know, small publishers are still predominantly driven by passion. And when you find something you're passionate about, there's a short enough decision-making chain so Lauren can come to me and the team and say, well, I'm incredibly passionate about this. And then I can look at it and the team can and say, well, actually, so are we and kind of go from there. But I mean, we knew straight away from once we read it, we were excited about it. We could see it's that kind of quality book we're all looking for. Um, so, yeah. Jamie, how did you come to choose to be published by Legend? Well, after before had quite a long route, I think, to publication. I had already approached some of the larger publishing houses and some of the feedback I'd got was that liked it it was falling between the stools of being commercial and literary so they didn't know how to sell it they didn't know what the marketing plan would be so I think that's why it took you know the bravery of an independent publisher to kind of take that chance and obviously I'm um, so glad that they did. Gemma you 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 have a your father's a musician you're you've written a play you're a journalist Tom how much did those credentials make you think this was going to be a goer does it make any difference where somebody's coming from I mean, I have a, a thing when I look at books and review them when things come across. I actually don't read the synopsis or the extra information or anything else because I want to make the decision. I think particularly with fiction, you can make a decision quite quickly just on the quality of the book. And to be honest, this whole the prize long listen for this and also um, a Life of Banana, it kind of it goes nicely back to the roots of kind of why I started Lena you know, Ledger Press 10 years this year. And it, I've actually, you know, with all this talk of industry and changes and digital and stuff, of actually just finding great works and championing them and putting them out there and them getting the, you know, the credit they deserve. Gemma, so this novel came out and there was a resounding silence. What did that feel like to you? Um... I wouldn't have necessarily described it as a resounding silence. It, yeah. it, it I, I was going to jump the, in there, but carry on. <laughs> it. It, it didn't get the kind of mainstream big reviews that I would have liked. But where it was reviewed, it was it was received very well. And there has been quite a lot of press in. It was on the BBC News, Meet the Author and various other places. So I was really pleased with the feedback it did get. I think the process of writing is such a solitary thing that for me to finally have a readership in you know in whatever form it came turned it into a shared experience and the book a shared entity that was it kind of completed the, the writing of the novel for me but obviously to now be named amongst the long list for the babies that catapults it into a different level of attention and that is you know such an unexpected delight for me and I'm I'm so glad that hopefully it will achieve a wider readership. Yeah, and I, you know, I think there's a there's kind of a, an issue which I often got about in publishing as well, or generally in the books, which is kind of the categorization of works. In that, you know, I guess people would say this is a, a literary book, and you know, as the market's gone on for various reasons, which will be longer than this podcast, literary's became kind of a bit of a slow and, and lengthy word. Where that's 
to me i wish we could kind of get rid of all the genre tags but but you know i particularly like about the long list that there's also you know 25 percent of the authors on there are, are debut novelists and you know and also it shows the strength of writing from the uk and i've often said that we're behind the us in terms of kind of here and now you know novels some new writers and getting behind them and i think that's a, an exciting move forward that a quarter of the list among some amazing names is debut novelists who are writing about current issues i think that's very exciting Gemma, are you following this up? Are you already deep into your second novel? Yes, I am. It's actually quite strange kind of coming up from there to, to, to talk about and think about after before again. But yes, I'm, I'm midway through a second one. So hopefully that will be, that will be next. And will it go to legend? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've, we've just actually agreed terms for that. So that's very exciting for me. Tom, before we move on to our next guest, I'm going to do something very unfair and give you the pitch for Lara Pawson's book. It's going to be called In the Name of the People. It's about a massacre, which may not have been a massacre, in Angola in the 1970s. Would you take this book on? I think that, thinking off the top of my head, it is... I mean, immediately when you said that, the start of that sentence, you hear 1970s, that starts to kind of, being completely honest, start to almost put me off as in thinking, well, you know, it's essentially a jaded story or it's something that's sat in someone's drawer for a long time. And then the Angolan part, well, then that kind of thinks, well, maybe there's a story here that hasn't been told, which is, is always an exciting thing. So that starts to interest me. And it's a, you know, I, I can't think of a, a, a better word because, it, you know, I, I imagine it a very difficult story but in terms of settings people do like an exotic or different setting as well so kind of think well maybe there's something interesting there so certainly the second part that would be the Angolan side that would that would make me think well I'll have a look and see if there's anything here. Well let's now hear from Lara Pawson herself. This is the biggest story in the world. We will look back on these times and we will think, what on earth were we doing? From The Guardian. This is a story about people and this is a story about possibility. It's a story that's eluded us for decades. It's clearly the most important story that we could be thinking about. And yet you scan the daily newspapers and it's almost absent. A topic which The Guardian is now throwing itself wholeheartedly into. I'd seen how we'd done it on other things. Climate change. Bill's simple proposition and his urgently was, this stuff has to be kept in the ground. It cannot be dug up. So we're letting you in behind the scenes. Editorial meetings, bids for commissions. You'll hear what works as well as our mistakes. And along the way, you can judge how we do. Is there a new way to make the world care? That's the challenge. What can you do that will force them to sit up and pay attention. The biggest story in the world on The Guardian. Guardian listeners get the latest news, but they can also create it. With our sponsor Squarespace, you can easily create an elegant website for your personal brand, online store, business, personal portfolio, or blog. Whoever you are, Squarespace's simple tools and elegant designs make your ideas newsworthy and accessible to any audience. Try it at squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Lara, you lead with your chin with the title of this book, which is In the Name of the People, Angola's Forgotten Massacre. Tell us about this massacre. Well, 
it's so hard to sort of talk about in summary, but the massacre happened in the late 70s. 1977 was when it began, May 1977. Which has got a special name. The 27th of May, yeah. It's called the Vinticet de Mayo, which means the 27th of May, because the day of an uprising which saw a split in the ruling MPLA party, the popular movement for the liberation of Angola, which was the, and still is, the governing party of Angola, has been since 1975 when Angola got independence from the Portuguese right up today. In fact, it's the 40th anniversary this year of of Angolan independence, so 40 years under the MPLA. Mm -hmm. And basically what happened was insurgents called the Natistas, you call them the the Natistas? Yeah, they're called, some people refer to them as the Natistas after the leader, Nito Alves, and they're also known as the Fraccionistas, the Fractionists, as we would say in English. And they were protesting against, they were in opposition to another faction of the ruling party, which was under the president, Agostino Neto. The names are quite complicated for British people to keep up with. But that faction was called the Netishtas because he was called Neto. So there are the Netishtas and the Nitishtas. Both are within the MPLA, but they're different fractions of the MPLA. So effectively, the MPLA split in two one side under Neto, the other side under Nito. And six people were killed on that day? Well, yeah, a minimum of six, but certainly six senior members of the ruling party were killed in an attack within the slum area of Sambizanga. So quite poor people living in that area killed six senior members of the MPLA, although even that fact is contested. Some people told me that they weren't killed by the poor. This was a kind of plan within the ruling party to then unleash a purge within the party. I believe, and actually you know, part of the problem, I suppose, or I think one of the benefits, one of the strengths of my book is I'm very reluctant to come to lots of conclusions. But I think for sure those six leaders were killed by supporters of Nito Alves living in the slum area of Sambizanga. Um, yeah. But the six is, in a way, that was just the trigger point, wasn't it? Because yes. then you're, the, the big question behind this book is how many people were killed in the yeah. reprisals yeah. coming from that day? And you never come up with an answer, really, do no, you? No, no. And I mean, today there are Angolans who will, in fact, on my way here, I was called by an Angolan man who lives in Newcastle. And he said to me that, you know, the figures of 80,000 people being killed are correct. Other people tell me in the book that it was only, in inverted commas, 500. Other people say 2,000. Others say 25,000. And yes, at the end of the book... In many ways, I'm none the wiser. And I think the whole question of numbers is what's so interesting, because if, in fact, it wasn't tens of thousands, it was just, say, two or three thousand, still a lot of people. If you think about Chile's Pinochet, you know, three thousand people is about the number he is alleged to have killed. But if it was, in the end, three thousand, not thirty thousand, what's so interesting about this event is that it has impacted upon Angolan people to such a huge extent. You know, this is a country that had at the heart of the transatlantic slave trade, was at the receiving end of some of the most brutal colonialism under the Portuguese. They were under a fascist regime of Portugal throughout most of the 20th century. For this event to happen in the late 1970s and to impact upon and create what the Angolans call a cultura de medo, the culture of fear, that the country has to this day is extraordinary. So as I researched it, I became more interested in the fact that 
If it is only 3,000, or that may not be, I suspect it's probably somewhere between five and 15,000. Lot of people to be killed, but not the numbers of 80, 90,000. Why is it that it has, has had such a long-lasting and devastating effect on Angolan people's political participation? And why is it that nobody's written about it in the West? Or have they written about it? Well, yes and no. In the 1970s, journalists working on Angola, some of whom went to Angola, British journalists, many of them, Basil Davidson, Michael Wolfers, but also French and Italian journalists, people like Augusto Conciglia, who lives in Paris, who still writes on Angola to this day, they did write about the event of the 27th of May, but they only wrote about it from the perspective of the ruling faction of the MPLA. So they stated that a coup attempt had taken place, six senior members of the party were murdered brutally, and luckily the uprising was put down, the coup didn't work, and the coupists were later executed. In fact, some of them don't even mention that the coupists were executed. They don't talk about the perspective from the Angolan people's point of view, which is that thousands of people were killed, or hundreds, hundreds, possibly thousands, possibly tens of thousands of people were killed, and that actually there were legitimate reasons for the uprising to take place. So those who did write about it only wrote about it from government point of view, and they kind of brushed it under the carpet. So, you know, when I went to live in Angola as a journalist in the late 90s, and people started to talk about this event, having studied Angolan politics at university myself, I thought, well, I've never heard of this. So I, I started kind of looking for information on it. And I found literally, you know, the odd sentence, the odd paragraph, I found a paper by Basil Davidson, a big historian, I found a one chapter by Marxist journalist Michael Wolfers. But none of these things mentioned the people who'd been killed and how devastating it had been upon the Angolan population. This is a quite a serious charge about a failure of journalism, failure of, of reporting by the international yeah. community of, yes. of, of people who were totally invested in Africa. Yeah. How did that happen? It's a I whole think, generation of journalists. Yeah, I think it happened for two reasons. I think from the perspective of the right, so journalists who you might conventionally put on the sort of within a sort of right wing category, I think for them it wasn't particularly interesting. It wasn't a big enough event. We were at the height of the Cold War. There were bigger events that appeared to be taken place around the world to be, uh, if you like, bothered with an internal faction, an internal cleavage within the ruling party. I think, though, more for me, what's more interesting is the perspective of the left-wing journalists. I myself come from the left. I've been very much formed by Marxism and Marxist ideas. What interests me are those journalists. Why didn't they cover it? And I think it was for two reasons. One is they didn't want to talk about the atrocities taking place by a, a Marxist or nominally Marxist socialist ruling party like the MPLA, which don't forget was being supported by both the Cubans and the Soviets. So there was that sort of, you know, which also happened in under, you know, Stalin's Russia. There were people who, like, you know, Eric Hosborn, who I think censored himself over what happened under under Stalin. And I think it's a similar set of ideas that the left becomes afraid to talk about what's actually happening, particularly the brutalities, because they don't want it to be taken on board by the right and then used as capital, if you like, to put down left-wing regimes. And indeed, even when I was researching the book, you know, 20, 30 plus years later, friends of mine on the radical left in the UK told me I shouldn't be doing it because I would play into the hands of the right. And you know, every time I nearly ground to a halt and gave up on the book, it was friends of mine in Angola, left-wing friends in Angola, who said to me, you must keep doing this. This isn't about European hang-ups, about ideology. This is about a fight for justice and, and truth. 
You're a white woman, a BBC journalist. Yeah. What gave you the right to tell this story or made you feel that this was your story to tell? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a really big question. Uh, yeah, I'm a white British woman. I have no family links to Africa. I have no claims to the continent. And I have, I think it's fair to say, sort of quite a lot of hang-ups about my whiteness and my role in writing about black African politics, if you like, although actually the politics of race in this whole story are also quite interesting. And I had many reservations about doing the book because I thought, you know, how many more books do we need about bloody atrocities in Africa written by foreign white journalists from Europe? Do we need any more of these? I think what pushed me to write it was what I sort of touched on a bit earlier, which is that many of my Angolan friends, black Angolan friends, and some of the Mestizo Angolan friends, said to me that, you know, they can't do this kind of work within Angola. First of all, they're very close to the subject. Many of them were traumatised themselves by the event of 1977. They felt too upset, actually, to, to sort of confront it. But they also said, you know, I've got the time, I've got the space to be in the UK and do the research from outside. In a way, it's an easier job. And I had the objectivity, perhaps. I mean, I don't buy into the idea of objectivity, and I'm certainly not someone who's objective. I'm very partisan and passionate and opinionated. But I do think that I don't kind of have the baggage of the Portuguese who always want to defend colonial rule. And maybe I'm not directly involved in it in the way that many Angolans were, which make it actually, it's just too raw for a lot of them. I mean, it's not so much about in this case, I would say so much about the white European and the black African country, although, of course, you can never escape that. It's more about the legacy of trauma, and it's easier to write about this stuff if it isn't your trauma. That doesn't mean to say you write the better book, but perhaps you can access it more easily. This isn't an area of Africa that's written about very much, as obviously. It, this book didn't get a single national newspaper review when it came out last year. And I was really fascinated by that because I discovered it because I happened to be judging the Orwell Prize and there was this sort of bomb of a book, really. Why do you think that is? And why, what made you want to publish a book that obviously wasn't going to make your fa you famous and fortunate? <laughs> no, I think... Um, I mean, Angola does get written about a lot, but it doesn't get written about a lot in Britain. If you go to Portugal... Angola's in the news all the time. I think it's partly to do with our colonial legacy, that British people are still hung up with the language, that, you know, we look at countries, if you see which countries we do write about in Africa, they tend to be countries of sort of so-called former colonies, you know, Kenya, Nigeria, etc. Ever since I've worked on Angola, which is now for about 17 years on and off, people have said to me, oh, yeah, well, wasn't that the place? Didn't Weren't the Portuguese there? Don't they speak Portuguese? And the moment it seems to me that British people sort of make this link of the Portuguese language, they seem to kind of just... I don't know, it's sort of like their eyes cloud over. And when Angola does get written about, it tends to be always tied into the oil economy because it's, along with Nigeria, it's uh, Africa's biggest oil producer, and corruption. People are less interested in the culture and the history. But for me, the history of the country is fascinating. And the more I've learned about it, the more fascinated I've been and you know the question of why did I decide to publish it well I think it's just because it wasn't known and because I felt it was such an injustice you know I mean I had a relationship with an Angolan man whose brother was executed in this event and um, I mean I'm now with a with a British man but I at the time I had a relationship with an Angolan man and when I began to realize what this event had done to people's lives I mean it it's a huge, huge issue for them. And I felt 
you know, people said to me, you'll never get the book published. Don't bother. Why don't you just write it in Portuguese or just you have a chapter about it and make sure you write about oil. And I thought, no, this deserves at least one book. I mean, you know, my book is only 100,000 words. I could have written 500,000 on the subject. I thought, you know, I'm damned if I'm not going to write about it just because the British establishment, the sort of establishment press and establishment publishing houses aren't interested. I'm going to make them interested. You know, if you write something well enough, people will read it. And that's what I've kind of gone with. And of course, I was really disappointed that it wasn't reviewed by the national press, really disappointed and really cross, you know, heartbroken, if the truth be known. But there we are. It's divided in three sections. And for the whole of the first section, you're not actually in Angola at all. You're, no. you're sort of trying to get your visa. I thought it was fascinating. The people you meet hanging about Bush House, which was the old BBC headquarters for the World Service, which is gone now. These people who are sort of the relics of old revolutions hanging around. Do you mean people like Joao Van Dunen? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it just there seemed to be, it opened up a whole can of worms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people who knew I was working on the book said, oh, you know, you've got to make sure it all happens in Angola. And I thought, well, actually, no, the whole point of this story is the way that we're linked, the links we have of ideas, the links we have of ideology and also of history. And, you know, when I came across Michael Wolfers, the Marxist historian, journalist who's sadly passed away, although, I mean, I should be fair to him, he's very cross with my work. He doesn't like the book and he doesn't like what I said about the 27th of May or about him. But, you know, you meet these people, these old revolutionaries, and it's, there is something very romantic about it, for me anyway. And I felt some kind of envy of some of them because I would sort of feel like, you know, I was born 20 years too late. I'd love it if I had been able to be out in Angola in the 70s and be part of those liberation movements and part of that wave of optimism for ideas of socialism optimism for cuba because you know one of the sad things about the book is is what i've learned about the truth of cuba's role in angola so, so at one point you, you say that being sent to cuba was a was a euphemism for being executed oh god yeah i mean this is an this is expression mandar a cuba it means two things one is it was it's sort of in the 70s not all angolans understand the phrase i learned it from an older woman whose husband was executed in 1977 in the purge of the mass of the MPLA. And she explained to me that Kubar means to go to sleep. But because of Cuba's role in Angola at the time, Mandara Cuba also came to mean you'd been sent to be killed. You know, one of those kind of expressions, it's hard to translate perfectly both ways. But yeah, the, the fact that the idea of Cuba was also used as an idea of execution of socialist Marxists, this isn't killing the right, this wasn't killing the, the right right-wing rebels of Jonas Savimbi's UNITA group. This is killing people who were Marxist. I just found intriguing but also heartbreaking of having to kind of face up to my own rather naive political ideals. Who are the readers that you would envisage for this? Well, I mean, loads of different people. In Angola, I'm on Facebook and I get messages from people on Facebook all the time and extraordinary messages even from people who are living in slums. The book in Angola, it's for sale in an Angolan bookshop, incredibly, because I was told I'd never see light of day in Angola again. And I have, as you mentioned earlier, had trouble getting visas. It is for sale in one bookshop there called Shada Kashin for over 50 US dollars. Life in Luanda is very, very expensive. Angola is a very expensive country. It makes even London look cheap. So Angolans are used to having to spend a lot of money on things. And people who are what we would see as poor, you know, who live in kind of the equivalent of a shed in a slum area are buying my book. They've got the money together. 
they buy the book, they read it, and then they send me messages on Facebook. Actually, what often happens is they say, oh, you know, now I understand what happened to my uncle, or now I understand what happened to my father, but none of my families will talk about it. So that's kind of one set of readers. But I also know, because I've, you know, I have friends sort of who are linked to the elite of Angola, that the book is sitting on the coffee table of Lucio Lara, the former secretary general of the MPLA, and that members of the elite are reading it. And some of them apparently quite like it. Some of them can't stand it. And it's made them inspire them to write their own book. You know, in Portugal, it's being read by quite a lot of women like it in Portugal. Women have got in touch to say, you know, they like the fact that I'm so critical of the men. And I am quite critical of men and my encounters with men and kind of being sort of sexual encounters. Um, or sexualized encounters, perhaps. But, I mean, here in the UK, this you know, it, it hasn't got enough attention yet in the UK, but slowly people are starting to hear about it. And there's quite a broad range of people reading it. And I think it's one of those stories that can have a lot for different people because of the politics, but also because of the fact that you meet people as individuals and everyone can relate to the stories of the women and men I speak to as, you know, just normal people like you and me who have been through these horrific traumas that they've survived, you know, they've survived them. If you'd like to discuss any of the points raised in this podcast, you can do so on theguardian.com slash books. We're always happy to hear from you. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Lara Pawson, Gemma Wayne and Tom Chalmers. The shortlist of the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction is announced on Monday, April the 13th. And the shortlist for the Orwell Prize for Political Books will be out on April the 21st. Next week, we'll be heading off for Mexico via the London Book Fair. Until then, from me, Claire Armistead, and my producer, Eva Krishak, goodbye. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.